but like I had I had enough assets. So there was a lot of stress in trying to manage that because it's still it's almost like I'm playing a game of Monopoly and I'm at the end where like someone lands on your property and you get like a ton of money, but then you roll and you land on someone else's property and all that money goes right back out. And when you give first. Um, and then you ask for something, you start being more likely to get it. But I would say focus on doing whatever you can do to get yourself into a position where you can get the additional income through whatever means that is. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled Podcast. This is episode number 269. Hope everyone has a great Thanksgiving this week out there for those celebrating, especially in the United States. I want to go back to, I think it was episode 265 recently. We had a follow-up email that I got that I mentioned I was going to read specifically regarding you know what had gone on with Celsius Network and just crypto in general. So I'm going to read that real quick from Ty. This is very cool that our episode episode got some attention. However, it's most likely for an unfortunate reason that Celsius Network has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. It's a shame because I and many other many other investors, employees, and community truly believed in the vision and mission. I believe there's still room for technology company to disrupt many aspects of traditional finance. And all this, although Celsius took a stab at it, I think greed got its grip on major decision makers within the company, which ultimately led to its demise. At that point, the bankruptcy and I, we had about 400K in assets on the platform that essentially been frozen in the bankruptcy since June. Net worth didn't take too much of a hit considering we we're pretty well diversified into income producing real estate and other more stable investments. As a matter of fact, our rentals were a major part of what kept us afloat last summer. And he goes on to, to kind of go into a little bit of this detail. So kind of interesting... Uh, let me just read this last little part. He says, I still believe DeFi or decentralized finance has a future, but I'm no longer interested in CFI, centralized finance, for obvious reasons. I think it's a fantastic time to begin dollar cost averaging into quality crypto positions. And as such, I'm now focused on rebuilding my positions through trading and with fresh income from two new companies I'm in the process of forming. One is a home remodel company I started with a friend of mine, something I find fulfilling and enjoy. The other is building automation consulting company and HVAC controls, the line of business I was in for 13 years. I've also taken on some renovation projects. And see, and he says, right now I hold about a little bit of Bitcoin and about 6,000, a bunch of other coins that aren't. Or small majority is tied up in the Celsius bankruptcy in terms of where his crypto portfolio is today. So, real really appreciate that follow up from Ty and Chloe. So, it's interesting thing to think about. We've seen a lot of interesting things happen, especially in the crypto markets and crypto exchanges the last couple of weeks here, and it's kind of it's kind of shocking and it's kind of mind blowing, especially in the world of finance, uh, especially as you know we really I think. Probably up until probably 2020, we really didn't even have anybody that came on the show that even had much of crypto in their portfolio at all. And then it became a little more commonplace where we had millionaires keep, you know, one to two percent or less. And then, of course, we had some that started to kind of build substantial portfolios in it. And now, you know, it'd be interesting to talk to a few more and just see what their thoughts are too, as as you know, crypto is kind of had quite the run and now is, is seems to be spiraling spiraling uh, pretty quickly. 
So something to pay close attention to, uh, like I said, um, we'll continue to to see where those markets head and see what happens. But at any rate, uh, today we've got a great guest on. His name is JJ. Works in the private sector, but has a tech-related background. His net worth is 1.1, half of which is in retirement accounts. He has about 300000 in a taxable brokerage account and another 300 equity in real estate between primary residence and some rental. Getting into great discussion with him about being a, a double minority and also dealing with the aftermath of a hurricane uh, in his area, New Orleans, and, and what that meant dealing with the stories and the tragedies and and things you know i think sometimes it's easy on on the show we get into discussing so many of the successes and maybe a few of the pitfalls a few of the mistakes but you know this is a a different kind of discussion where you're dealing with very stressful situations real life things that to some degree were out of his control you know act of nature act of god and have to deal with and pick up the pieces and dealing with you know real people real human life and this is something that you know no matter what level of of uh wealth you have, some of these things affect some of your assets, no matter how big those assets are, and, and you've got to do something about it. So great discussion with him. Last week, we had Jennifer, a net worth of just uh, around $1.35 million. So great episode with her if you want to go check that out. And without any further delay, let's get into the episode with JJ. JJ, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Uh, yeah. So I, um, I work in IT. I started working as doing uh, tech support for an internet startup company. And over time, that evolved into being a business analyst. And then that turned into being a prod- product manager in the software world, which is sort of like a project manager, but um, a little bit but about products and software. And um, most recently, I've worked at um, General Electric and the tech center that they had in New Orleans, which was a really awesome experience. They got a lot of super smart, talented people there. And then COVID caused that to close down. And I ended up getting a job in the private sector. Um, and so that's where I'm working now, helping people that, that kind of ha- are, are uh, participating in civic duties and doing things for the, for the citizens of New Orleans. Awesome. And what is your net worth today? Uh, right now, it's at about $1.1 million. And how is that broken up? Uh, it's so about 500 of that is in different retirement accounts. So like an HSA, an IRA, and then about 300 of that is um, just in taxable, a taxable brokerage account. And then let's see, five, six, seven, that's eight. And then the rest of that is equity and proper rental properties that I own. Okay. So you've said half a million and that's in retirement accounts specifically for retirement? Yes. And how is that invested? Is that in the market in index funds or mutual funds or bonds? Uh, that, so most of what I have in my IRA, so in my HSA and my IRA, I put most of those into index funds. And with the, so what ended up happening was when I left GE, that's where I built most of that over the past few years. I put that in Fidelity's uh, FZROX fund. Like after I left the company, I was able to control the funds because there's um, there's no there's no um, like what's expense ratio the expense ratio was zero so that's why I did that there and because I didn't plan to touch that money for a very long time I just have it in in in, in the next fund I have a Roth also and in my Roth account which I actually have with Vanguard there's about sixty eight thousand there and that is I've, I've kind of been shifting it over time now it's mostly in an S and P five hundred uh, index fund but when everything dipped and 
2020, I bought some a REIT and I got some gold. It's like a, it's not like exactly gold, but it's like the, I think the the index fund is investing companies that like mine gold. And I just did that just because I figured it was cheap and it was a little bit of a diversification play. And because the REITs kick off those dividends to, to, to try to keep it in a place where it wouldn't hurt me from a tax perspective. Interesting. Okay. So do you plan, I mean, you're pretty young, you got a half million dollars invested in retirement accounts. It's obviously been built up fairly quickly. Are you going to continue to contribute to those accounts? Oh, definitely. So at my current job, I am maxing out my um, 401k. And ultimately, that's you know going to turn into an IRA when I leave the organization. But yeah. And so what's happening now is that's kind of turned into like my insurance. Um, so over time, you know, you're your interpretation of what you're you're doing and your goals, all that evolves. So that went from being my primary, you know, retirement vehicle to now that's more of my insurance. And that's why the three hundred thousand dollars in the taxable brokerage, I started focusing more on that because I liked the idea of just being able to access that money and use it as a tool and use the either the dividends and capital gains from it or the funds themselves with the intent ultimately of buying more real estate, which I'm starting to change my mind just based on all of the the drop the logistical drama I'm dealing with as a result of the hurricane, a hurricane Ida damage, but, but yeah. So now, so now that's back up. I'm continuing to contribute to it with my W-2 job, but my, I'm starting to try to focus more on getting funds that are not locked up in those retirement accounts. Will you contribute? You said you, once you move companies or, or leave, it'll turn into an IRA. Will you continue to add to an IRA or you know a Roth in the future, even when you're not working, maybe a W-2 job? Because it sounds like maybe that's the route oh, you're headed. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Because again, it's kind of a, you know, I see it as kind of kind of my backup so that if, you know, if I, if I, if other ventures don't pan out and it's time for me to retire, then I'll have like a nest egg that I'm able to kind of draw from. But that's changed from being a primary to now a secondary focus. And I figured totally. even if I never contributed anything more, $500,000, you know, it's going to continue to grow and I can, you know, put be, be riskier with things that are in taxable account. What what return do you expect to generate from those accounts that are invested in in, in a market? Uh, probably between eight and ten percent. And I only say that just because they say historically that's what the market has returned. And so again, I'm using FC ROX, I think I think it is. And then an S P five hundred fund in the Ross. So if those, you know, if those things kind of hold to hold true, it'd be about eight and ten percent. So JJ, let me ask about the real estate. You have about three hundred in equity in rental equity, right? Yes. And how much did you say in your primary? Uh, so my primary, the last time they, I got a quote on it, it was about three hundred and fifty thousand, and I owe about two hundred and fifty thousand. All right. So you got one fifty on your primary. You got three hundred in in rental, and that's composed of how many rental properties and what type? So exclusive rentals are two single family homes and then I live in a duplex and rent one side of it. Hey man, you're house hacking. I am house hacking. All right. Learned that from Scott Trench, by the way. And are they, those are not paid off, right? You have mortgages on both, on all of them? I do. Okay. And and what do you cash flow a month? Let's just combine all three. What do you cash flow a month after the payments and any expenses or repairs? So uh, probably if you, if you did, and also like I've set aside money for like, you know, emergencies, vacancies and stuff like that. So I'd say probably rough, roughly about uh, 17, 17 or 1800 net. 17 or 1800 cash in net. Net, yeah. After payments and, and mortgage payments and any repairs or taxes or insurance, anything. Yes. That's a lot. So you're lo- you're looking at $25,000 a year in passive income. Oh, yes. Give or take. Yeah. Yes. 
not counting like the the, the stuff from the taxable accounts, the, the dividends and whatnot. But yeah. It's right, just, right. Just from the real estate. Yeah. So you mentioned Hurricane Ida. What happened? What was the damage? Curious to hear about that. Okay. So um, the two, so my primary residence had practically no damage, which was New Orleans proper. My, one of the single family homes flooded. And so the tenants did not have renter's insurance. And interestingly, um, about three weeks before the hurricane, I did a walkthrough because they were um, about the seven or eight month rental mark. And I just wanted to kind of check and see how the property was. And I mentioned that to them and they were like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, we'll we'll probably get it or whatever, but they didn't. So what ended up happening is um, they evacuated and property, I think about three feet of water. And then when the water receded about a foot, uh, kind of stayed there for a, a long period of time, probably 18 hours or so. And so I've experienced that before, actually. And I know that here in this area, if you don't, and the city didn't have power, so it's in a it's in a suburb town of um, that was that was flooded really bad by Ida. So the city didn't have power, like basic functions and stuff weren't available. So when you have a house that gets flooded like that, even if the water recedes, but there's no power, it's like a spark of mold will start and then it can like eat the inside of the house because the insulation will still be absorbing water. Um, so if you don't cut it out, even if even if the water's gone, it's still inside and it'll, it'll keep feeding that mold. And it, and it doesn't take long, like once it like once it starts appearing. I wasn't, I needed to, and also because the insurance companies encourage you to try to mitigate your damages. They don't want you to just kind of let something sit and get worse if there's something you can do to keep it from getting too bad. So I tracked the tenants down when they, they went to Atlanta and, you know, was like, I, I, I you know, it's difficult, but you, you need to, if you want to keep any of the items that were in the home, you're going to need to get them or make arrangements to get them because I have to hurry up and start gutting it. Otherwise, it's going to destroy the house itself. So they were they were actually really um, easygoing about it. And they they told me they gave me some contact information for some family members that lived in that same city. But when I physically went to try to go to where their family members were. Um, this was maybe four or five days after the storm. I physically couldn't get to it because there were so many downed um, power lines and debris and stuff in the streets. And then because the cell towers were damaged and stuff, I couldn't get a signal. I couldn't call anyone while I was there. So I ended up contacting the tenants when I got back to where I'd evacuated to in Mississippi. You know, let them know I tried to contact their family. I couldn't and asked what they wanted to do. And so that we kind of went back and forth for a few days. They were finally able to find someone um, about a week later to come and get their things. And the stuff that they got were primarily things that were mounted on the wall, like televisions and photos. But everything that was on the floor, like their children's beds, there was a family of uh, five. So they they kind of lost, lost the majority of their possessions, which was really unfortunate. The other property, interestingly, did not flood. And that one, I did a lot better job, I think, of selecting. But what happened there was those tenants were very belligerent because I think they were just stressed out and upset. And so when I reached out to them, they were really defensive and basically said, you know, we're leaving, we're ending the lease. They had six more months on it. They were like, we're leaving, we're ending the lease and we're going to leave our things there and don't come into the property until we take them out at the end of the month. So with no city infrastructure, there was no way for me to enforce anything. And I also didn't want to you know, look like a jerk and be trying to evict someone, but the property didn't flood. 
And even though it had a lot of wind damage and damage to the yard and the fences blew down and all of that, it was a situation where I could fix it up and get tenants in and start kind of recouping money because I'm still having to pay expenses and pay contractors and et cetera. So I'm losing a lot of money while, you know, while the properties are, are not able to be rented. Well, I decided to do a walkthrough in that house just to see the state of things before the end of the month. And when I went through, by that point, it was maybe two weeks after the storm, the property had power. It had no flooding. So it was inhabitable. When I went inside and there was no power, I this was um, like in the middle of the day, but it was like overcast because then I forgot the name of the storm, but another storm came through that was not nearly as bad as I had. Nicholas, I think it was, whatever it was, it was causing a lot of um, rain and the sky to be overcast and whatnot. So even though it was the middle of the day, it was still really dark. Went to the house, the tenants weren't there, walked inside, I heard noises and I knew that they had a dog and I thought maybe they left the dog in the house, but it sounded like a person moving around. And like in those scary movies, instead of just running away, I, I, I called out and said, hi, I'm, you know, I'm the property owner. This, you know, this is JJ, is, is anyone in here? Didn't hear response. Went to the back of the down the hallway to the a back bedroom and I saw a shadow move across the room. So I knocked really loudly on the door. No one said anything. Opened the door and for whatever reason, the tenants had taken shovels of dirt and grass and covered the floor. And there were about seven or eight guinea pigs without food, without power, running around in that room with feces and urine and reeked of ammonia. Um, so that was a oh shock. Oh my goodness. Yes. And These I, are their, their pets? I, I'm assuming so. I'm assuming so. Because someone, someone you know, I, it was clear that someone had taken a lot of time and effort to cover the floor with dirt and the grass and whatnot. So didn't do anything. You know, I call, I calls, I tried to call um, the Humane Society just to see, you know, like what what to do. If anything, I couldn't get through because again, the phone systems were down. I tried calling a Justice of the Peace to find out what the eviction process was because I didn't think it was a good idea to have that stuff in there with no power. But And it turns out that the, the reason there was no power was because the tenants turned the power off so they wouldn't have to pay for it, not because that house couldn't have power. It had power. They turned it off. So anyway, what ended up happening is I, I, a justice of the peace did contact me back from his personal cell phone. I found found them on Facebook, but they said that the the whole like their whole office and everything like the phone systems weren't working or and whatnot. And um, the person basically said you there you can't evict anyone until the 27th because of the uh, uh, a moratorium by the governor. And so since the tenants had said that they were going to leave at that point anyway, I didn't do anything. When I went back, they had removed all their things, and it looks like they tried to clean that up. But when you look at the floor, it's obvious that there's there's fecal matter. It smells bad. So that so that was what would happen with my two. Man, this is crazy. You know, you hear about these things on TV or maybe you've been, some of people have experienced, I know in New Orleans, it's it's like commonplace, right? It happens all the time, but you know, it's crazy. So high level, just walk us through how much work's needed on these properties. What does the value look like, insurance proceeds, et cetera? With the one that flooded, that was a nicer property because I had lived there. So it had like um, granite countertops and um, it had been renovated and I had redone the bathroom. Because I was able to find a really, really intelligent contractor, he told me a lot of things that have helped save me a lot of money. But right now, so prior to the storm, I don't know what the value is going to be now. The property was valued at $195,000. I only owed $74,000 on it. The insurance, just the flood insurance, is going to pay about $85,000. So in terms of work, the property essentially had to be gutted. So we had to cut about four feet of sheetrock out and insulation. Um, we had to pull all the sinks out. We had to pull all of the appliances out. Again, all of 
tenants' belongings had to come out. So they had like beds and toys, kids' toys and video games and all kinds of things. And um, so we pulled all that stuff out. So that's the state of that one. So ultimately, so technically, if, if I just took that money, I could pay the property off and, I, and I'd have a few extra thousand dollars. But I'm, I'm choosing not to do that. I'm actually going to work with the contractors and get it and get you know the walls, the insulation put in, the walls put in, uh, sheetrock hung and floated, painted, the kitchen cabinets redone. And the other property, again, pro- the primary damage. For, oh, and also at that same property, too. So there was a covered shed. Um, it wasn't enclosed, but it had like a roof and it had um, four posts. The storm like took the roof off. It didn't damage the roof of the property, which is interesting. Not a shingle was missing. So I'm kind of amazed by that. I'm so proud of that roof. But the patio, it pulled the roof off of the patio, ripped it in half and put half on one side of the yard and half on the fence on the other side of the yard. And it pulled all of the poles out and the poles are just like gone. So I don't know if that was a tornado or part of the storm or what 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 happened. So there's just a concrete slab back where the patio was. And the fence is all around it. I don't know if this is the rule everywhere, but they say that kind of the side of the fence if you have the nice side of the fence, then that means it's yours and you're also kind of responsible for putting it back up. So all of the sides of the fence were the nice side, like the, the smooth side was on my side. All of that was like completely blown down and the wood was chewed up and, you know, Lord knows where. The other property, the primary damage is to the roof and there was just extensive shingles ripped off. And so it's not, it can't stay like that because it's just not like it's got like tarps on it and stuff. So that whole roof is going to need to be replaced. And then all the fences were blown down and that patio actually was, there was nothing that happened to that patio. And there was a shed that's there and the shed was still there, even though the fences and everything around it got, got blown away. Oh, and in terms of the cost to repair, so it's primarily just the roof and the, and the fences. I haven't really gotten estimates on the fences for the roof. A couple of estimates have been around fourteen and $15,000. And I'm working with the insurance company just to see you know what they're willing to compensate me for. Um, and then I'll kind of be able to work through that and figure out you know what to do with that. And again, since that one internally didn't really have any damage aside from the weirdness with the animals, as soon as I can get it in rentable condition, again, because it didn't flood, I should be able to get someone in relatively quickly. I just kind of need to get the, the roof taken care of and some cosmetic, minor cosmetic stuff inside. And since I have a good amount of savings, I'm just going to I'm just going to pay for that regardless. I'm not going to wait for insurance to get that fixed. I'm just going to fix it and then you know get reimbursed from the insurance once they kind of figure out what they're going to do. And the insurance process has been very slow and painful. And for anyone who has hazard insurance where they have um, it's called loss of use. But what it means is if you have it as a rental property and the tenants can't um, or, or, or not paying for some reason that you get reimbursed for that up, up to a certain percentage based on how much you um, you're paying for. But what I found out or what I'm finding out, because I just found out some more information today, is that there are certain things that trigger that. So for one of the insurance companies that I'm using, they said that the trigger is if the, if the governor has a mandatory evacuation, that will trigger it. But if there's not, then it won't. Or if there is catastrophic damage exclusively caused as a byproduct of wind damage. So for example, the property I had that flooded, according to the, what they've been telling me, I actually wouldn't be eligible for it, even though I've been paying, even though the, the property is not inhabitable. And as far as whether or not there was a mandatory evacuation, I've had so many other things going on beyond that, because when I evacuated, my car broke down. I was in Mississippi, so I'm dealing with that. And, and the dealership there is kind of holding it hostage. 
I, I haven't had a chance to really pursue, but it, but it's looking like I'm probably not going to get compensated for the loss of income because of the because of the way that the properties were damaged. So the one that has the roof, because the roof wasn't damaged such that it caused rain to get inside the property, they're not going to compensate me for it. And I think when I talked to the other insurance company, they said that the governor did not make a mandatory evacuation, so that wouldn't be an option either. Interesting. So many little things that you don't really know or probably look at when, when you go buy insurance. So... JJ, is real estate the next vehicle for you to to really pursue wealth building? And and is that kind of the venture that you're looking towards next? It was. And up until the hurricane, I even wanted to get one more rental property that was geographically far enough away that one hurricane wouldn't do what just literally happened. My my knee-jerk emotional reaction was take the money and run, get the properties together, sell them, put it all in the market and just you know, just rely on a taxable account and just use kind of the dividends and capital gains and stuff. But now that I'm kind of calming down, I'm I'm not exactly sure how I feel because again, I have a lot of stuff going on because like I said, I also have an issue that's going on with my car too. So I'm not totally sure, but that was my original plan. And as I'm calming down and de-stressing and working through all of the different hurdles, I'm starting to get lean back towards that. But for me, the rental property, because different people, you know, get them for different reasons. I, I think sometimes people do it for appreciation. But me, for me, I found that the rental income, when things were going well, I was able to use to put into the market and grow my taxable portfolio really fast. And so I I still see see real estate as a vehicle for me for that. And also like like beefing up my emergency fund. So I had been holding about thirty to thirty five thousand dollars um based on tax advice from my tax professional that I got because he was like you have too much going on to not have more cash. And so I focused a lot on that um in the past twelve months. But now seeing how several things happen simultaneously. So like two properties being, you know, pretty much uninhabitable as a, as a byproduct of a storm or as a byproduct of tenant behavior, having my car break down when I was in another city, having my primary residence not be habitable only because I didn't have a generator and there was no power and there was no infrastructure. So you couldn't get gas. There was nowhere to get food. All of a sudden, I had a whole lot of expenses that I didn't expect from almost every non-paper asset. And so now I'm like, you know what, I, I, I believe even more in having a larger, and for me, for me, having an even larger cash cushion, just because there is a possibility that a whole bunch of things that you have going on could have problems simultaneously. And I, I wouldn't have thought, you know, I never would have thought, that. the storms are kind of thought, but then, you know, having a car emergency, and then having a car dealership that kind of was is was using that as a tool to kind of manipulate me into paying them more and more money and then refusing to give me my vehicle. So I ended up actually buying another car because I didn't want to keep fighting with them until I could either figure out if I needed to hire an attorney or what. It just it just made the point through personal experience that it really helps to have a good emergency fund. I mean, especially when you have like properties and, you know, automobiles and I'm single. Too. So it's not like I have someone else's income to kind of help offset any of that. Wow, you've been put through the ringer, man. Yeah, this is this is the most crazy, stressful stuff that's happened to me. I think to to date. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Thank you. But you, you know, but you know, the interesting thing about it is because of all the work that I did, like leading up leading up to this, you know, one of my fears was just is just being destitute. You know, and I grew up 
you know, very, very poor near the poverty level. But like I had I had enough access. So there was a lot of stress in trying to manage that because it's still it's almost like I'm playing a game of Monopoly and I'm at the end where like someone lands on your property and you get like a ton of money, but then you roll and you land on someone else's property and all that money goes right back out. So (laughs) I feel like if you think of wealth as like kind of, I guess, wealth accumulation as a timeline, but think of like the middle of it as like this big hump. And the top of the hump is that it's when you have a lot coming in, but a lot is going out right before the storm. I was starting to go down on the other side to where I was starting to be able to retain a lot more of that. And then because of all of those problems hitting me simultaneously, it kind of pushed me back towards the middle of it. But because I'm so close, it's like I can't stop. I'm like, like, I'm almost there now. So there's no, you know, there's no like the properties, like the mortgages are so small because I made a very defensive play with that. And the upside is so great when I'm able to rent them, you know, that it's like it, do, it doesn't make sense to stop now. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm almost to the point where I could walk away from a from a W-2 job. You know? Yeah. And, and you're just for context here, your mid 40s. How old were you when you became a millionaire? That happened at the end of 2020, ironically. So gotcha. what, right right after the so new, you're a newly minted millionaire. Congrats. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's new. So, so you mentioned, JJ, let me just back up here. You mentioned you grew up in poverty. And if you'll allow me to, I'm just going to read a line from the email that you wrote into us. Um, you said a brief background. I was born in Arizona. My parents divorced when I was two. My mom moved to the South when I was five. We were extremely poor during that time. Section 8 housing, peanut butter and jelly for dinner, candles, boiling water on the stove for warm baths sometimes. So, so let's just get in. I mean, it's amazing, obviously, to see where you've come. But let's get into your story Talk about your upbringing and just how this whole story started. Yeah, so my parents were, and I think that was one of the main triggers for the divorce. Um, And at that point, um, they were, so if you notice, I don't have a traditional Southern accent. It's because I was born in Phoenix, Arizona, because my mom went there with my dad for college. And um, that's that's where I was um, born. Well, they divorced. Uh, She ended up, when I was about five, coming to... Uh, Yazoo City, Mississippi, so on the Delta in Mississippi. And we kind of gradually migrated south to the coast. So um, some of the challenges that I kind of started to experience was, so I was identified as a gay man, was a a gay young man, was a gay teenager, was a gay child. So I started to get a lot of ostracism unless my position was that's not, like if I didn't acknowledge it. So I kind of had those stresses. Because my mom was single and she was struggling and she was working as a secretary for many years. And so she didn't make a lot of money. So um, there wasn't a lot of income in the house. And the belief system of the organization, I guess the the religious organization that we were a part of, was kind of devote yourself to God, abstain from secular pursuits. Well, when my mother ultimately remarried, I was seven. She happened to marry someone that was uh, very, very, very homophobic. And the way that that manifested was through physical violence. So I was being abused by that person um, physically. Well, over time, it got back to a point where I was like, I need, I need, I need to move out of here. And so, kind of with all of that volatility going on, I didn't want to leave without at least trying to get um, like a, a trade or a two-year degree. And so I kind of made a compromise with my family. I was like, because because their their feedback was, you should be serving the Lord. You don't need to be going to college and, and having a secular pursuit because I wanted to be an attorney. Um, so the compromise was I would go to a local community college for two years, get an associate's degree in paralegal studies, and I would be a paralegal. 
So I got the degree and then moved out. And interestingly, when I got my first job, um, it was a part-time job and it was in IT because I, I just had difficulty getting a, a job as a paralegal uh, fresh out of school. When I first got the job, um, so that particular religion has um, a tradition of going to people's homes, usually in the mornings, um, during the week and on the weekends, proselytizing, I think is the word. Well, what was happening is by having a job, I, I didn't have as much time to do that. So I was still doing it, still going to the different church meetings and sessions and whatnot. But one of the leaders in the organization pulled me aside and said, you just so you understand, you know, putting your efforts into a job is not going to result in you being rewarded you know, by our Heavenly Father. And so you really need to be refocusing and putting more of your efforts and more of your time, you know, in the church. And 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 also kind of turning a blind eye to the to the physically abusive situation that was happening in my household. Well, that and 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 the thing that the person told me that gave me a complex for a very long time was he said, JJ, just so that you understand, that company is going to go on whether you're there or not. And that, since I'm a very logical and very analytical person, that just freaked me out and burned in my brain. And it took me months, maybe even a few years, to kind of psychologically realize why what he had said to me was dangerous and poisonous, which was really that that was true, that the organization would go on and exist without me, possibly, but that my influence and my perspective and my view and my take on things was unique and no one else has that. And so the influences that I would have on that organization, which was a, an internet startup, would be unique to me and no one else could duplicate that. And so once I kind of realized that, that kind of broke me out of that. And then I kind of just pursued my career in technology, and over time, that I ended up getting into um, the, the, some of the more recent jobs where I've been able to make a six-figure, a low six-figure income and use that to start building kind of my, my nest egg. Well, thanks for sharing. Thanks for opening up. I appreciate it. And I think others that resonate with the story will be happy you did. So I, let me just read one more piece. In the form, we ask, to what do you attribute your financial success? And, and you gave some great advice, but let me just read one piece that kind of talks about or is right in line with what we're talking about. You say persistence. Being a double minority can lend itself to a lot of challenges in life, including getting in your own way, getting in your own way. Persistence is what helped me got past that and any other obstacles. For me, taking ownership and control of my financial life also helped. So we recently had JJ, a, a listener, write in, and we did an intro on this um, couple weeks ago or so but they wrote in and said how does someone continue you know where do they find the strength the motivation the desire to keep going when times are tough and i think that can be this or or when you feel like you're not making as much of attraction and moving forward financially but how where did you get that persistence what drove you what would be your advice to somebody that said how did you keep going when when you kept getting beat down oh that's so hard um i think and this probably is not going to be a satisfying answer. But for me, quite frankly, it was ignorance of the way the world works. So because it was like ironic, even though I was very sheltered as a byproduct of the religious upbringing I had. So we didn't celebrate birthdays. We didn't celebrate holidays. That also kind of caused me to be an outcast at school. But because I was a child going through that experience, I didn't know anything else. And I felt like there was nothing wrong with me. And that I was okay. And some people have the the benefit of being able to see someone in the media or in their life that they aspire to be like or that they want to follow. Since I didn't see that or have that, I kind of thought, well, 
I don't like the situation that I'm in now. I want to change it. And there's no reason I shouldn't be able to change it. And so and so I didn't have a lot of the baggage of, well, the man is trying to keep me down or because of because of the way that I look or because of my um, sexual orientation or because of things like that, that I should always be on the lookout for that. And also because um, I'm very driven, I found that in a work environment, especially in technology, usually you can either do something or you can't. And if you can do something and people need that, then you have leverage and you give first. Um, and then you ask for something, you start being more likely to get it. So um, it was kind of just not, you know, it's like if I walked into a room, even now, if I walk into a room in a white collar situation, whether it's a negotiation or whether it's a product meeting or whatever it is, there are so many reasons why people might not respect me or might want to give me um, a difficult time. They might not like the color of my skin. They might assume that I'm gay and not and have issues with that. They might think that I'm not conforming to whatever stereotype they have in their head and they don't like it. I'm not that tall. They might, you know, I'm a small guy. So there's all these things. But but because I didn't get like exposed to that, and at least with my mother, she didn't focus on those types of challenges and kind of say, well, you need to watch out because you're an African-American man or anything like that. That was never a thing. So when I walked into a room and I had something to say, it's like, I have something to say and I think you need to listen to it and I'm going to say it. And, and usually you know, I was able to provide value um, based on the things that I had to offer. And that just resonated. And so it was kind of like, I'm going to do this thing and then it, and it would happen. So in terms of motivation, I, I think, again, it's like it's, it's kind of like I'm just very goal oriented. And uh, and if I don't like a situation, my, my perspective will be I want to do this thing and then I'll take efforts to do that. I will say some things that kind of support that, though, are things that you kind of hear about, like automation. So, for example, even if it's just contributing to like a retirement account, if you automatically have money going into that, then you're not you're not manually fighting with yourself between wanting to buy an ice cream or coffee or a video game or video game system and and that money because it's already been earmarked and it's already automatically going. So automating things, surrounding yourself with people that are supportive or extricating yourself from situations that are hazardous for your for you psychologically or physically. You know, you just kind of have to find ways to to get the support that you need. If it's getting away from an organization or moving towards something. So I think, I guess it's kind of the having a goal and then trying to do things to set myself up for success and using different tools. And now with the internet and podcasts and things like that, there are a lot of sources of information that can kind of give you tips. And I think maybe for me, it's the accumulation of those tips combined with not wallowing in self-pity or getting caught up in all of the things that could be going wrong or things that people could be doing against me. Just not caring about that and not focusing on that. Well, thanks for sharing that. Thank you. Thank you for opening up. I appreciate it. Um, let, me, let me just ask you about one thing, too, that you mentioned about the advice is doing whatever you're trying to pursue, right? At some point, I think you mentioned you have to stop reading and trying to learn about it and actually go in and do it. And it seemed like that was something that helped drive you, perhaps, in real estate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, the, first, in fact, the, the, the situation with the drug dealers that I ran into, that was like a, a good learning experience. But it's like if I hadn't had a lot of the issues um, that kind of were associated with that and, you know, not properly vetting people, you know, I wouldn't have in that instance, because really, I, I feel pretty comfortable figuring things out and doing them myself. But it's like you're still one person. You have finite resources, you know, finite mental capacity, finite energy. You know, I learned I learned from that. But 
if I hadn't have done that, you know, or if everything that I had been doing had been working out you know, perfectly, I wouldn't really be learning. And then when I had like this crazy situation that I have now, I would have completely fallen apart. But because I've made some significant mistakes, you know, I've been able to learn from them. But it was the doing. It wasn't it wasn't about reading it in a book. It's like actually, you know, getting 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 a, a, a call from a from a from a neighbor who says the police just broke down the door to your property. You need to get over there and then having to go and talk to the neighbor. Oh, and then I had a situation too, just real quick, where um, one tenant discharged a firearm and the bullet went through the window in the house and went into the kitchen of the neighbor while the neighbor was um, washing dishes. And so having to like be in a situation like that, show up, <laughs> face the music, you know, has given me like coping skills and stuff that, that I wouldn't be able to get just from doing research and watching YouTube videos. <laughs> you got some crazy stories, man. Oh yeah. Wow. Well, let me wrap up with you with a couple of rapid fire questions and then we'll get into last words and advice. So what's been the most expensive uh, car you've ever purchased? Oh, the one that I actually just purchased. It, it was only $28,000 with all like the tax and everything came out to about 35. And that is a 2018 um, Toyota RAV4. Okay. Uh, any debt besides that, uh, the mortgages on the real estate? No, not written. No. Okay. What, what's been your most expensive vacation? Oh, uh, God, probably, probably like a, a $500, uh, five day cruise. Okay. And then what's been your most expensive purchase that's non car and non house. So maybe a vacation or a toy or something fancy. What's been your most expensive non car, non house purchase? Probably my television. I think it was about $2,000 had it for like six years, I think now. Okay. Uh, do your friends, family know you're wealthy, know you're a millionaire? I don't, <laughs> I don't think so. I think that there's one, there's one, one relative who I think suspects because he's always asking me for money. And he told me that he's been talking to his friends about me. So I think, I think he's kind of starting to piece together that, that, that I have a, a decent amount of, of wealth, but for the most part, I don't think so. Okay. Do you have you ever used or do you currently use a financial advisor? Ish. So every now and then there'll be like financial advisors with at some of the brokerage firms that I use, and I'll have an opportunity to get like a free session or whatever. And then there've been a few that I've um, that I've approached and gotten feedback from. But there's there's no one consistent person yet. But I'm but I I think that's important. And as 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 my portfolio grows, I'm finding that I do need someone to kind of help me with that. So that that my my goal is to get a, a regular person somewhere that I that I work with. Okay. What's been your range of household income through your work in life? Um, counting and uh, investment type income or just W-2? Uh, let's do, yeah, I think investment income works. Okay. So last year, I think my income was like 220, about 225,000. I think that was a little bit of an outlier because a bunch of weird stuff happened because of COVID. This year, up until what just happened, it would have been 175. So that would be the most. Wow. And what's the W two at? Because you got, are you including the twenty five thousand of real estate in there? Yes. So the so the W two right now is about a little over. I'm, I'm hesitating because I'm like some people might find this annoying, but it's a, a a little over six figures. Okay. And then what about household spending annually? Um, I think my total my total spending is typically about thirty five thousand, but I'm counting every mortgage in that. So if you pull that out, if you mean like just my personal spending, it's probably uh, probably that's probably about twenty twenty five thousand. Yeah, gosh, man, you're not spending much at all. No, 
All right, JJ. So let's wrap it up here. I know you've given a ton of nuggets of advice here and some really interesting stories. So thanks for opening up and, and sharing all those. Um, if, if someone were to come to you just in closing here and say, hey, how did you do this? You know, are there a few things that made you a millionaire? Or if I'm just starting out my journey, what should I do? What would be your advice to them? I, I definitely. So um, saving is not the way to wealth. And it's kind of one of those things, again, your, your perception, your interpretation, things evolve. But like those books and those podcasts and people that say growing the, the amount of money that you have, I think is 100 percent true. And I'm putting a lot more energy into that now because it's like it's kind of it seems like it's psychological. But I've noticed, like, for example, I do dollar cost averaging. But it's like once you get to a point where you're able to do thousands of dollars, you know, um, every every week or every other week, that's what's going to start making a difference, you know, not not being super defensive. And so for me, it was focusing on my career, finding out ways to leverage income when it made sense, um, changing jobs to get a higher paying job, doing some, some side hustles that generate additional income. Um, so I would say growing. I think one of the biggest things is you have you have to have something that's there to to work with. And that, and that does take effort and does take work. And a lot of times people, you know, are in a disadvantaged situations. But I would say focus on doing whatever you can do to get yourself into a position where you can get the additional income through whatever means that is. Awesome. Awesome. Great advice. Well, thanks again, JJ, for coming on Net Worth 1.1 and growing pretty quickly, I think, right? We're going to have to have you come back on when you hit two or three million here. So congrats on your success. Thanks for opening up. Really appreciate it. Thanks for sharing your story and all those other stories you shared. So really interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jason Clark. I really appreciate talking to you. Thanks, JJ. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.